Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter for Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to do verses 9 through 27, which describes the new Jerusalem. Our context is this. In the first part of Revelation 28, the first eight verses, John reveals to us the new heaven and the new earth. That, of course, is a symbol for the New Covenant Church. And likewise, the New Jerusalem is a symbol of the New Covenant Church. And that's what we're going to take up today. The judgment part of Revelation is in the past, in the first part of the book. All the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments and the Roman Empire is gone. The sea beasts have been thrown into the lake of fire. Their persecution is kaputsky. The persecution of apostate Israel is over and done with because the land beast, the false prophet, has been thrown into the lake of fire. All those who don't have the mark of the beast, all those who do have the mark of the beast, i.e. the the Jews who were idolatry worshiping the Roman Empire and conspiring with that empire to kill Jesus and to chase his apostles down and kill some of them and persecute them, they've been thrown into the lake of fire. So the bad news is over with. Now here's the good news. What's being established after all this judgment? And that's the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant kingdom of God. Now, the metaphor has kind of changed. The new heavens and the new earth is using the whole created universe as a metaphor for the new creation. And now we're going to drop down the scale, the geographical scale a little bit. We're talking about the holy city of Jerusalem is a symbol of the New Testament church. And so we start now in verse 9, Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now we have a reference, of course, to the seven bowl judgments, which were a result of the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and the seven trumpets were the results of the opening of the seven seals. All of that was, ju- most of those seals, trumpets, and bowls were judgment, mostly on the land of apostate Israel. So one of these seven angels says, hey, I'm going to show you the bride. I got, I, I'm, we finished throwing out the, pouring out the plagues, on God's enemies, and I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so the bride, that tells us what we're looking at. We're looking at the church of Jesus Christ. And the bride, that's that's New Testament, folks. That's not way off into the future. The bride of Christ is right now where you and I are. We are, we are the bride of Christ because we're in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, John had already been shown the whore of Babylon, the false Jerusalem. Now he's going to be shown the true bride, the new Jerusalem. We go now to Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11. And he, that's this angel with the bowl, the the bowl of plagues. Is referred to here in verse 10. And he, this angel, carried me away in the spirit, carried John away in the spirit, in this revelation that John's having, to a great and high mountain, and show me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming down out of heaven, which means it's the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, Paul, uh, John, excuse me, is carried to a high mountain. This is far away from the wilderness where the whore of Babylon was in chapter 17. We read this, verse 3, Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, 
I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous, blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So, of course, the scarlet beast is the, the devil. The devil was in the wilderness. Well, the scarlet beast, I'm sorry, is the Roman. The dragons was in the wilderness, too, but the scarlet beast was the Roman Empire. That was in the wilderness. And the woman, the whore of Babylon, the false apostate Israel, sitting on that scarlet beast on the Roman Empire, they were all in the wilderness because the wilderness is a place of demons, tribulation. For example, the children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years where there's snakes and serpents, and as a result of their sin... Demons search for waterless places when they're cast out. I think Jesus said that when he cast out the demoniac, Gadarene demoniacs. The woman in Revelation 12 was protected in the wilderness from the dragon that tried to pour out a bunch of water and drown her. Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, the place of temptation and judgment. That's the wilderness. But on the other hand, mountains in the scripture refer to where God is. For example, the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a mountain. Jesus ascends to heaven where? From the Mount of Olives. The Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. Isaac, which, who was a type of Jesus' sacrifice, he was offered on Mount Moriah, mountain. The city of God, the people, the symbol of the people of God is Mount Zion. So good things happen on mountains. And so John is carried to a high mountain. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. He got a closer look there being up on the mountain. Having the glory of God. Now, the Shekinah glory had already left the temple, the old Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, Matthew 27, 51 says this. Suddenly, this is after Jesus' crucifixion. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, that torn veil was a symbol of the fact that now people could enter into the sanctuary of God. It also opened up the temple so that the glory of God from within could leave too. Now, this idea of the glory of God leaving the temple is we can find in Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the glory cloud leave the temple, and then he saw the glory cloud return to dwell in the new temple, the church. Let's look at where he saw the glory cloud leave the temple in Ezekiel 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted their wings and ascended from earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the God of Israel was above them, and it stopped at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. If you think about the orientation of the temple, the eastern gate was facing, I guess you could say he's facing the Jordan River, it's facing the east, and the glory is getting ready to leave from the east. A leave toward the east, I should say. If we go to Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23, the next chapter of Ezekiel, we read this. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them lifted their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So these cherubim and the wheels, that's a famous vision of Ezekiel. That's God. That's his Shekinah glory. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. So the glory of God left, left the temple, left Jerusalem left the temple in Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 11, left Jerusalem, heading out. But then, at the end of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2, we see the glory cloud returning to dwell in the new temple, the church. 
Let me read that. He led me to the gate, the one that faces east. That's the same gate where the glory left, the east gate. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. All right, so the glory is coming back now. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge tarn, and the earth shone with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the way of the gate that faced east. That's the same gate that the glory had left earlier. Now it's coming back in. Verse 5, Ezekiel 43. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now Ezekiel 43 is prophesying of the New Covenant Church. The same New Covenant Church is being described here by the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem which, verse 11, Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem which has the glory of God. Glory, of course, is effulgence, brilliant splendor. We kind of know what that means. It shines. It's a shining. It's the light of God that shines in its brilliance. Now, the city of God, in verse 11, the holy city, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Jaspers are red quartz. So we kind of picture the bright, red, shining New Jerusalem. And she is said to be brilliant. But before I talk about how brilliant the New Jerusalem is, let's look at a quotation from Josephus. It's quoted a lot about the glory of God leaving the old temple. Pentecost of 66 A.D., as the priests were going about their duties, there was heard a, quote, a violent commotion and din, unquote, followed by, quote, a voice as of a host crying, we are departing hence. And Josephus records the feelings of many in Israel at the time. God has turned away even from his sanctuary, he says in book two of his work. The temple was no more the dwelling place of God. The deity has fled from the holy places, as he said in book 5. So, even Josephus, a non-Christian, realized the glory of God had left that temple that the Jews worshipped so much. I have no idea what that violent commotion had done in the voice as of, as of a host crying, we are departing hence. I don't understand that, but I do know that Josephus was quite aware that the glory of God had left that temple. But now, going back to the New Jerusalem, the city of God, we see that it was brilliant. The word for brilliance means light bearer. And that word in the Hebrew, in Genesis, referred to sun, moon, and stars. So the New Jerusalem is full of light bearers, i.e. Christians. This is one more piece of evidence that the New Jerusalem refers to the New Covenant Church. Christians are said to shine as luminaries in the world, Philippians 2.15, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars. A star is a luminary, so you're shining like a star luminary in the world. Daniel 12.3, those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars. You're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. So that's Christians in the New Jerusalem, making that city light up. Now 
Now, I mentioned that New Jerusalem was like jasper, which is a red quartz, like semi-precious stone. God is said to be like jasper, too, in Revelation 4, verses 2 through 3. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. I'm going to talk about carnelian stones and all these other stones that we see here in the next three verses in just a minute. So I just focus on Jasper here. God has the appearance of Jasper, a bright red quartz, and so does the New Jerusalem. We go now to verses 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation 21. It, the New Jerusalem, had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So if you will picture here, we're going to see in a minute, this is a huge cube coming down out of the sky, out of heaven. And there were twelve gates on each side of of the vertical side of the cube, three gates for each side for a total of 12. Now 12 is significant because the 12 gates stand for the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the old covenant people of God. We know that because it says here, it says that, that on the 12 gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel in verse 12, Revelation 21. So the 12 gates are the 12 tribes. And then at the bottom in verse 13, there's foundation stones stones somehow in the bottom three of them on each side and those foundation stones stood for the apostles john explicitly tells us that that's real nice when he tells us what the symbolism is 12 names of the 12 apostles that's the new covenant people of god so this whole thing is all those who've ever believed in yahweh and god almighty they're all here in the new jerusalem old covenant and new covenant now notice that these 12 gates are pointed towards all four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And this means that the gates of the New Jerusalem are open to every tribe, people, tongue, and nation of the world. The gates are open. Come on in. Get saved. Luke 13, 29 says this, They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus there was talking about believers. And so here John finishes the imagery saying, There's the New Jerusalem. He's talking about the new covenant church, not just something, some millennial kingdom or some final state kingdom. It's talking about the new covenant church, which stretches into the final state. Let's drop, take a sneak peek here at verses 24, 25, and 26 of this chapter, Revelation 21. We read this, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The nations, every tribe, people, and tongue are going to be coming into this kingdom, going into those gates. Verse 25, its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. Too many Christians lighten the place up. Doesn't ever get, doesn't ever get dark. Jesus lighting the place up. God lighting the place up. 26, these nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So that means all the great kings of the world are going to bow their knee to Jesus as they come into the church. The gates are never closed, as we read in Revelation 21:25. The gates are never closed. The church is always willing and able to bring the lost into salvation. 
The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of God's anointed one. Now I say the twelve foundation stones of the New Jerusalem were the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is another indication that the New Jerusalem is the church of Jesus Christ, not some millennial temple or not some pie in the sky by and by at the end of time thing. It's the church. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, we read this. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles are the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed goes into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So we are in the church, and our foundation is the apostles. This symbolism is quite easy because John explains it for us. Now Ephesians chapter 2 is a metaphor talking about how the temple has apostles as the foundation. Here in Revelation it's the new Jerusalem itself has the foundation of apostles but it's okay because the temple is where God's people live with him and likewise in the new Jerusalem that's where God's people live with God. We go to Revelation chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. The one who spoke with me, this is the bowl angel, and had one of those bowls with the plagues that were poured out. We read about that in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues cried out and spoke to John. Well, that's the same angel. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. We've got a cube here. Verse 17, Revelation 21, and he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, that's the New American Standard Bible translation. 1,500 miles and 72 yards are absurd translations. They completely obscure what John is trying to talk about, about here. They're trying to make it easy for English readers, and so they translate the Greek into English units, and it, and it means nothing. Well, first of all, let's talk about, if you want to take this literally, I want to mention this because I had a shocking experience when I was in college, and there was a dispensationalist Bible teacher well, he was a student, actually, at Columbia International University. Then it was called Columbia Bible College. I still remember his name after half a century. He's long been gone with the Lord. He had some kind of disease and, and died prematurely. He's a very nice guy. And as part of his Christian service, he came out to teach us. Now, we've got a bunch of people that were sort of in the middle of the... We weren't Jesus freaks, but we were influenced by all that. And there was a lot of hippie Christians running around. This was in the late 60s, early 70s. So he sits there and he starts teaching us the book of Revelation. And then when we get to this part where the the New Jerusalem is a cube coming in out of the sky, he said that was literally going to happen, that, that, that there was going to be a city coming out of the sky onto the earth. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. And right then I knew there was something bad wrong with dispensationalism, hyperliteralism. And I said, Joe was his name. I said, Joe, do you mean to tell me that when I go to heaven, there's going to be gold everywhere? It's going to be so much gold, I won't care about it anymore. I want to see some grass. I want some grass. I want some... No, the Bible is literal. The book of translation, you know, just unbelievable. 
Hyperliteralism will lead you into the pit of confusion. This is, and remember, this is what John is seeing in his vision. This is a, this is symbolic. It is not something that's actually going to happen in space and time history. Now, here the New Jerusalem is being measured by this angel. The temple had been measured earlier in chapter 11. We read in verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. Then I, John, was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure the temple, not the city now, but the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and, it will, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, the city's being measured now. The city is the temple. There's no difference. It's just two different metaphors for the same thing, the New Covenant Church. What does measuring mean? It, measure, it means that the temple and the city is being marked off for sanctity and protection. The same way I mark off my property, I get a surveyor to tell me where the boundary lines are, then I put barbed wire fence along the boundary so nobody that's not supposed to be there will come in, so nobody can squat on the property and take my property by eminent domain. I'm trying to protect my property. Well, likewise... When God has his city and his temple measured, he's protecting protecting it. He's protecting, and he's also showing the ownership of it, just like when I measure my property and get a surveyor to draw a plat and record it in the courthouse to show whose property it is. Likewise, when, one, when the angels or John are measuring the temple and the city, they're trying to show that God owns the city and the temple, and he's protecting it. He owns the church, and he's protecting it. Now, in Revelation 11, we see that the outside courtyard was not measured because it was given to the nations, and that's the nations of the Roman Empire, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Jerusalem did that. Excuse me, Rome did that to Jerusalem for the three and a half years. 42 months is three and a half years of the Jewish war. So the nations have the old Jerusalem for 42 months, and now the nations are going to have the new Jerusalem for eternity because they're going to get converted all right, let's go to these measurements. 1,500-mile cubic city. A city this big on a side is absurd if taken literally. You ever seen a city 1,500 miles high? That's absolutely absurd. And yet, that brother, when I was in college, insisted to me that it was going to be literally a cube that high. And as I said earlier, translating it with English units completely covers all the symbolic meaning. In the Greek, it's 12,000 stadia. Well, you see the symbols there. 12 is the symbol of the church. you got 12, tri uh, 12 tribal leaders for the Old Covenant believers. you got 12 apostles for the New Covenant believers. And 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is many. 10 times 10 times 10 is many, many, many. So you've got manyness combined with the church. And what does that mean? It means there's going to be a heap of people in the New Covenant Church, a whole ton of us. Notice the city is equal on its side, 12,000 stadia on each side. It means it's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube where God dwelled in his Old Testament tabernacle. All right, now let's look at the wall that's around this city, 72 yards. Again, a ridiculous translation. The NIV interprets the measurement to be the thickness of the wall and not the height. Well, it doesn't matter. Let's assume it's the height. And it's absurd, if you take it literally, that you got a wall that's 72 yards high protecting a side of a city that's 1,500 miles high. 72 yards to protect 1,500 miles of city. That is ridiculous.
the wall, even though it's ridiculously high, 72 yards, you ever seen a 72-yard high wall? Even though it's ridiculously high, it nevertheless would be dwarfed by the city it was designed to protect. So let's look at the Greek. The wall, it's 144 cubits high. Well, there's your symbolism again. you got 12, that number that shows up a lot in these passages here in Revelation 21. 12 stands for the Old Testament tribes, the Old Testament people of God. And then you got 12 apostles, the foundation for the New Testament church, stands for the New Testament people of God. You multiply them together. 12 by 12, you got the church in its majesty, in its vastness, in its perfection. 12 times 12. Now these measurements which we just looked at are said to be angelic measurements. And this is a little obscure. The NIV translates that these measurements were by man's measurements which the angel was using. That's fine with me. The angel was measuring off the city and he was using measurements that John would be familiar with, the Greek measurements, stadia, in one case. I'm not sure what the Greek measurement was for the height of the wall, but at any rate, it would be measurements that John could understand. And I think that's the best way to explain it. Chilton, who has a great imagination, he says that there are divinely ordained correspondences between angels and men. Angelic activity in heaven is a pattern for our own activity. When we see God's will done in heaven, we are to mirror that activity on earth. Well, that's a good sentiment. I believe that. I'm not sure that's what John meant here. I think he was just saying it's a detail in the vision that the angel was measuring things out in the way that John would understand in, hu in human uh, a human measurement. At any rate, we move on now to verses 18, 19, and 21. And we read this, the material of the wall was jasper. Remember, jasper is a red quartz. Remember, we said the, the New Jerusalem itself in a previous verse was jasper, that red-like quartz. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Don't just think of gold, but think of gold that's almost translucent, that you can see through. Ringed by red, by red wall. It was very beautiful. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. If you think about that, think of a gate that's carved out of pearl, set into the stone wall. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. All right, this is beautiful symbolism. It's not how it's going to be in, when we go to heaven that we walk around on gold, on the streets of gold, as you hear all the time. This is These are symbols and a vision. So all these stones, I'll mention, I'll give you a brief description of all these stones in just a minute. But the point is, is that the overall point is, is that the city is described in terms of jewelry, not in terms of defensive battlements, the way cities often are described, because there's no need 
to defend the city anymore because all the bad guys have been thrown into the lake of fire. So the church is getting to enjoy its beauty the way that God intended us to be without having to worry about the devil and all his angels. The original pattern was set in Eden, and it's, Eden is described with jewels, Ezekiel 28:13. And again, this is symbolic. You, Tyre, were in Eden, the garden of God. So Eden is the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountains and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. So Eden is described symbolically was a bunch of precious stones. Now again, the reason God puts precious stones in the world is so he can use something for a metaphor to describe the heavenly realities. I remember when I was a little kid, somebody gave me a at one of these craft shops that you go up in the mountains, and it was a box of rocks. And some of them were what we would call precious stones, but they weren't polished, of course. They weren't, they were just raw. But I was fascinated with those rocks. I remember those rocks to this day after 50, after 60 years. And I remember thinking how pretty they were, and I wish I knew more about them. Well, Eden is described with precious stones. The New Jerusalem is described with precious stones. Now, Isaiah described the coming salvation in the church as a city adorned with jewels. Isaiah 54, 11, and 12. Poor Jerusalem, storm-tossed and not comforted, I will set your stones in black mortar and lay your foundations in lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a hard, bluish-type rock, if I remember correctly. I will make your fortifications out of rubies, your gates out of sparkling stones, and all your walls out of precious stones. So you see the idea of the New Jerusalem is a beautiful place. Like the precious stones on the high priest breastplate, each representing a tribe of Israel, precious stones. Now, some people have gotten really excited about high priest breastplate stones and the signs of the zodiac but there's no known correspondence between the order of the stones and the signs of the zodiac or the order of the tribes each tribe having a correspondence with the stone you can't really make a correspondence like that doesn't matter the point is is they were beautiful the builder of this city god is supremely wealthy and totally unconcerned about attack i mean you got to be wealthy to put all these stones in, in the and the wall of a city that's 15,000 miles high, or the wall of the city itself is 15,000 miles high, and the, and the wall is 72 yards high, that's a lot of stones. It's actually the city wall, not the whole city, but the city wall that had all the precious stones in it, not the side of the city. And, of course, the gates are made out of pearl. That's pretty expensive, too. The stones would be worthless militarily and easy to pick up by enemies, if there were any enemies, which there's not. Now, let me give you a quick running definition of each of the precious stones. I got this off the Internet from Dictionary.com. Jasper is opaque. It's red or yellow or brown or dark green. Sapphire is sky blue. Chalcedony, or, sometimes, or you can pronounce it chalcedony. It's translucent to transparent. It's milky or grayish colored. Emerald, of course, is transparent and green, like the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz. Sardonyx, jet black with red and white bands. And by the way, you can do a research on the uh, Internet and just look up the images, and they'll show you the pictures of all this stuff. Sardius is a reddish-brown gem. Chrysolite is brown, yellow-green, or olive. Beryl can be opaque or transparent. It's usually green, but it can also be blue, rose, white, or golden. Topaz is yellow. Chrysoprase is apple green. Jacinth is a deep purple. 
amethyst is a moderate purple or violet. So you got the idea. Every color in the rainbow is on the walls of the city. And you notice there's 12 stones on the wall. Well, actually, I say on the wall. The city wall was adorned with every kind of precious stone, but also the foundation stones, which represent the apostles, were of 12 different types of precious stones. Again, it's just for the effect of beauty. So each apostle had his own stone, if you will. And each gate, that's the tribe of Israel, they were made out of pearl. Not a bad description of the new covenant people of God. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. I saw no temple in it. This is John looking at this cube coming down out of heaven. He saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Why does the city of God have no temple? Because the city, because God lives in the city. He doesn't need a temple, a special place to live, because he's living in the city. He's living in his saints. The Lamb itself is the temple. God himself is the temple. It's where everybody lives. All Christians live now. It's where he lives. He doesn't need a temple. He's living in the city. He's living in his church. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. What's the need of light? The Christians inside the temple are shining as luminaries. The glory of God, his brilliant effulgence, is illumining the city. Its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's in the city lighting it up. A temple has walls and doors separating the residents of a city from the immediate presence of God, as in the Old Testament. But that's not going to be the case here. There's no doors, no walls separating us from God, Revelation 7.15. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. So we're, we're serving God with no hindrance. No need for a holy of holies. No need for priest. No need for a temple. Now this statement by John that the glory of God has illumined the New Jerusalem. Let's look at the prophecy of this from in Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. That was a prediction of the church, folks. In fact, I remember a song that I used to sing back in 50 years ago, Rise and shine, for your light has come. And it, the author of that little hymn, that little song, directly applied it to the church, and correctly so. Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, and your moon will not fade. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your sorrow will be over. So there you see where John pulled his, or Jesus, or the angel. Well, I guess John here, he saw the temple and he described it in terms of the Old Testament. 
The city has no need of the sun or the moon. That's what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. Your sun will no longer set. Your moon will not fade. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. The sun will no longer be your light by day. And the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. See, the, the language is exactly the same. We go now to Revelation 21, 24 through 27. And we will be finished with chapter 21. The nations will walk by its light, by the light of the new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Well, a king might have a little bit of glory, but he's going to take all that glory and put it into bigger glory, in the brighter glory of the New Testament church. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. Now, a city's got to close its night, its gates at night in case somebody might attack at night. But there's not going to be any night. There's not going to be any enemies. There's no need to close the gates. No enemies, no nighttime. Why is there no nighttime there? Because you got the Lamb shining, you got God shining, and you got the Christians as luminaries in the New Jerusalem shining bright. No darkness anywhere. And of course, light is a symbol of righteousness, and darkness is a symbol of sin. But there's not going to be any more sin. It's going to be wiped out. These kings of the earth, verse 26, will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, into the New Jerusalem. In other words, people are going to be getting saved. People in outer Mongolia, people in the far west of China in Xinjiang province. Well, I saw somebody get saved out there one time. One more light into the kingdom. People in Malaysia, in Japan, in Africa, in India, all over the world. Even in, Cal even in deep, deepest, darkest California, people are going to get saved. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, it's going to be Christians. There ain't going to be any need for church discipline. There's not going to be any sin on the part of Christians screwing up God's kingdom, because all of that will be purged away. All done by the blood of the Lamb. Now, verse 27 might make you think, well, see there, this means at the very end of time that this New Jerusalem is talking about because nothing unclean will be there, no abomination and lying. Well, no, that's just talking about the culmination of it. Remember, the New Jerusalem covers the whole period from first advent to second advent to the end of the world. And even though verse 27 might sound like the end of the world, we got to remember that in the first part of this section, verse 24, it says the nations will walk by its light. They're not going to be any nations at the end of the world. The nations are now. So it's talking about all the kings of the earth coming in now as we get more and more people saved in Myanmar, in New Zealand. Now, Isaiah prophesies that all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the people of God, just like John says here. Kings of the earth are going to bring their glory into the New Jerusalem and the honor of the nations into the New Jerusalem. Let's read Isaiah 60, verses 5 and 6. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and rejoice, because the riches of the sea will become yours, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Well, that's talking about physical wealth coming into the old into Solomon's temple, I suppose. Well, except Solomon was several centuries before Isaiah. So this is prophesying of the nations coming into the 
into the kingdom of God. We see this in verse 9 of Isaiah 60. Yes, the coast and islands will wait for me with the ships of Tarshish in the lead to bring your children from far away. Their silver and gold with them for the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. So again, Isaiah's using physical symbols of wealth, talking about the glory of nations coming into the kingdom. I'm going to emphasize this one more time in verse 25. In the daytime in the New Jerusalem, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. That's straight out of the same prophecy in Isaiah 60 that I just read from. Isaiah 60, 11. Your city gates will always be open. They will never be shut day or night so that the wealth of the nations may be brought into you with their kings being led in procession. All right, I just told you about the wealth of the nations. The wealth of the nations will come to you, caravans of camels, camels, gold, frankincense, and all that. But all of that is symbolic of people coming into the kingdom because John uses that phrase in Isaiah 60, 11, your city gates will always be open. He uses it in Revelation 21 of the new Jerusalem and he says its gates will never be closed. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now he's not talking about camels and frankincense and myrrh. He's talking about salvation. And people will be cleansed of their sins and so when they, they enter the kingdom they will not be, they will not be unclean they will not practice abomination and lying. And by the way, you don't necessarily have to say verse 27 refers to the final state at the end of time. It could refer to the church now. Because, after all, if the church does proper church discipline, it kicks out people who are doing that kind of stuff or never lets them in to start with, and we're all covered by the blood of the Lamb. So, this symbol is the new covenant church, the new Jerusalem, even as the new heavens and the new earth in the first part of chapter 21 refer to the new covenant church. And that's why I call this a preterist interpretation, an orthodox preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation. Because lots and lots and lots of this book are for us now, not excluding the riches that are going to happen in the future in the, end, in the final state, not excluding that, but including riches for the church now, which dispensationalists completely miss because they're too busy speculating about black cobra helicopters. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with that somewhat pejorative ending, I am now going to tell you that next audio, we're going to go to the last book of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. The first six verses will be the river of life. We'll talk about that in the next audio. Before we finish up the book with chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, where we see that Jesus is coming soon. S-O-O-N soon not 2000 plus years in the future but soon hope you stay tuned for those next two audios and i hope you enjoyed this one